For those who don't know, my name is Kaipo. I have the uh, wonderful privilege of getting to share the word with you good fellas today. I uh, enjoy being used by the Lord, and uh, it's, fun, it's fun to be a part of. And you know, one of the, the things that's difficult at times is trying to figure out where exactly do you share? And I've, I think I've sort of taken a, a page out of uh, Pastor Brett's book, and just, you know what, when you just get to go through the word, it makes it a little easier. Makes it a little more, uh, you know, palatable uh, to, to figure those things out. And that way, it's not just me trying to come up with all these points, but just going through the word. And so uh, I'd like to do that today. You know, if you've been with me in this last summer and this fall, I've kind of been moseying through uh, Nehemiah. And uh, it's been such a privilege for me to really see all these points and all these, these principles lifted out. Because honestly, I, I'm not a guy like Nehemiah. I'm not sort of the firm, you know, aggressive, sort of get after it. I'm probably a little bit more behind the scenes, non-confrontational. You know, there was that difference between Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra was one who pulled out his own beard. You know, he prayed, he lamented. Nehemiah was the one who struck him in the face. He pulled their beards out. He was one who was fiery. But you know what? He got things done. He got things accomplished. And so I love Nehemiah for this very fact that there's so much that I can glean from that. And my hope, my desire for us today as we continue through this discussion is to see, to see what the Lord would want us to glean as well. So um, for those who haven't, you know, I'm going to do a quick little brief you know, overview of, of Nehemiah's one, two, three, and 4. Uh, just curious if, if you were with us last summer, or maybe this fall, who's actually gone through with me, Nehemiah 1, 2, 3, 4? Give me a raise of hands. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, quite a few. That's awesome. Um, so this will be kind of a recap, but you know, again, the mother of all learning is what? Repetition, right? So if you hear something over again, don't chalk it off. Pay attention, tune in, be uh, you know, attentive and hear what the Lord may want to do and how he may want to stir within you. So as we, uh, as we sort of um, do this quick little recap, Nehemiah 1 and 2, we see how Nehemiah was a man who cared. We saw that he was one who actually cared. And before you and I have any ministry, before we can do anything worthwhile, you and I, we have to actually give a rip. You know what I mean? We have to actually care about what's going on. If we don't, people can see that miles away, whether that's with our spouse, whether that's with our children, whether that's with our work. If you don't care, man, you have to start there. But you see here that not only did Nehemiah care, but he prayed. It led him to pray. And that's where he asked for the Lord to, to lead him and guide him. Then he waited patiently to ask King Artaxerxes to, to be able to go and to be able to be provided for. He waited, he asked. Then after that, he saw that we saw that he rested. Didn't get ahead of the Lord, didn't lag behind, but he saw the importance of rest. And then moving forward, you see that he actually went. He didn't just think about these ideas of this, this journey, of this, this thing that the Lord would want for him, but he actually went. And finally there in chapters one and two, that he actually worked. He actually worked. And so a great picture for us of what Nehemiah has done, that he had this conviction and he, he did what the Lord put in front of him. Nehemiah is one and two. And then there in Nehemiah chapter three, we saw the type of workers there were. You saw that you had the leaders, those who were sort of leading the charge in that. But you also saw the spectators, the men of Tekoa, who wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. They wouldn't do the work. You had the overachievers, those who, you know, the few who did a lot more than the rest. And then you also saw this family man, how they were to do the work alongside their family, those closest to them as a rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the gates. Not only the workers, but you also saw the gospel in the gates, 
Again, this is just a quick brief overview here, but you see each of these different gates, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, on and on, and how there's that scarlet thread sort of woven through the scripture of Jesus, the gospel message. You know, we're told there in Hebrews 10, 7, in the volume of the book, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And we saw that here, uh, picked it in the gospel and the gates. And then last fall, we looked at uh, you know, Nehemiah chapter four, and we saw that there was this, the tactics of the enemy, how they come at us and how they come at us, scorn, sarcasm, and his response to that. How do we deal with oppression that comes from outside? The, the people had a mind to work. We also saw there was rubble in the, around the wall, but to take out the trash, whatever those issues are in our lives that we need to deal with, don't just let it sit there, deal with it. Remove the trash from our lives. To be armed and fearless, how, you know what? We're to, put at the mo- we're to be put at the most vulnerable, hottest part of battle. And how our wives, our families, our kids need to see us go through struggle and hardship and lean on him, trust in him and endure. And lastly, we saw those three implements, the sword, the trowel, and the trumpet. The trowel to build one another up. The sword to defend off spiritual attacks. And the trumpet to sound the call when we need help, when there's issues that we have to go through. So again, real quick overview. But again, as you, as you begin to see this, we begin to see, man, there's so much that Nehemiah is packed full of. So many things that we see how uh, Nehemiah is, is this great picture, this great example of leadership. You know, in today's day, uh, leadership is a huge, huge, uh, you know, there's a wealth of money within that. You've got leadership podcasts, you've got leadership books, you've got leadership occupations, like so much of what you and I are a part of nowadays is desiring to be a better leader, is desiring to be one who leads well. And I think someone could make a lot of money by just going through Nehemiah, (laughs) go through Nehemiah, look at what Nehemiah does, how he exemplified an awesome leader. And that's my hope today as we sort of look at Nehemiah 5, we look at how he responded, not just to the, uh, the tactics of the enemy without, but now he's going to have to deal with the oppression that comes from within those close to him. So if you aren't there yet, Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to read through this and then, uh, and then we'll get to work. So again, put away the distractions, put away the yard work that you want to do because the weather's kind of nice, put away the other things that you want, you know. Put all those things out of your mind, and as we read through this, allow the Lord to speak to us. So listen in as we read through Nehemiah chapter 5. It says there, and there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren, for there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them for other men have our lands and vineyards. Verse six, and I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? 
Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Then I called the priest and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides the 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall and we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because the bondage was heavy on this people. Remember me, my God, for good according to all that I have done for this people." Father God, our hope today, our desire today, as we get to look at this and we get to sort of lift out what it is you would have for us this morning, that you would be lifted up and glorified. I pray that we would decrease and that you would increase. So speak to us, I pray. Fill us with your spirit. Convict us. Rebuke us. Correct us. Encourage us, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Nehemiah chapter 5. The beginning of this, right off the bat, you see that there is a great outcry. A great outcry. And we see that there in verses one through five. Now, when I was looking at this great outcry, I was looking at the different spots in scripture that there was the people crying out loud, that there was a great outcry. Now, what this specific instance here in Nehemiah stands apart from others is there's an additional people group that's involved with this outcry. If you caught that, it says, and there was a great outcry, verse one, of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. Typically, when you see this great outcry, it's just mentioned of the people or whatever else. But here, it's specifically the wives are also crying out. Now, I think about this, you know, as I'm getting to sort of coach with my my little ones, doing soccer and, you know, uh, basketball and whatnot. Now, when a a dad comes against you because, you know, his five-year-old's not playing too much or whatever else, it's like, ah, whatever else, you know, I can deal with that. That's fine. But when there's an outcry of mama and the mama bear's coming at you, you're like, this is a whole different deal. There's a whole different deal how I'm going to address this issue. And I think, of, I think of that, how this outcry that we hear from here, it, it's, it's hot. It's, there's tension there. There's this, this grave response of what's happening. And so when I looked at this, the first thing I saw there is when I looked at the other outcries throughout Scripture, the first one I, I came across was in, there in Exodus 3, 9 and 10. 
it tells us there, Exodus 3, 9, says, there, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the people, of the children of Israel, has come to me, has come to the Lord. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This first outcry, if you will, of, of the people group was from the children of Israel who were in bondage to Egypt. They cried out, and how did the Lord respond? Mercifully, graciously, ready to receive, wanting to bring Pharaoh and build Pharaoh up to, to relieve them from this bondage, this outcry. But there's another outcry that I came across, and there in Genesis chapter 19, you guys know the story, there of Sodom and Gomorrah. It tells us there, verse 12 and 13, it says, then the men, the angels there, said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whom you have in the city? Take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. You've got two varying outcries and responses from the Lord. On one, you have this merciful, tender, kind Lord who wants to bring, Pharaoh to bring Pharaoh to remove them from that. But then you also have this sinful, sort of depraved Sodom and Gomorrah. There was an outcry there. Judgment, destruction was, was coming for them. And so we see, how does Nehemiah respond to this outcry, this outcry of these people? Well, we see there, as, as they're crying out, they're sort of giving and, and lamenting and saying, this is what's happening. We have these different issues that are happening. <clears throat> the, the issues that we see before we get to Nehemiah and how, how he responded is uh, first, there was a, a people problem. There was an explosion of people. It says there in verse two, we, our sons and our daughters, are many. There were so many people at this point because they were coming to join the work, to work in on the walls. Sometimes when there's people, uh, check that. Every time there's people, there's problems. Every time there's people, there's problems. You know, one of the blessings that, and I will say blessings, but it's a, it's a problem is there's a lot of people here. There's a lot of people at Athey Creek. There's a lot of people coming in, streaming into this, this place. And there's a danger that I've seen with some of us. Some who are newer, who are coming in, being a part of the work, just hungry and excited for what the Lord's doing. I think there's an excitement. But those of us who have been around a while, who've been around, who've seen the Lord work. You saw it when church was smaller. You saw it when there was fellowship was a little easier. Those of us who, who remember those days, what happens is, is you become a little jaded. Now as there's more people coming in, you know, that one chair, that one spot that I used to always get to, well, now there's someone else in that spot. That parking spot that I love out here, man, that, there's this other guy now parking in that spot. You know, and you begin to start, you start building up this bitterness. Why? Well, there's more people. People bring problems at times. One of the things I want to emphasize for us, maybe those you know, long-time believers or, or athe creakers who have been around a while, if you're at a point in your walk where every time people come in, it's infringing on you, on what you want, on where you're at, can I encourage you? Check yourself. Check yourself and where you're at. Check yourself where your heart's at because, yeah, there's people, but you know what? It is a huge blessing to see what the Lord is doing. And if you, if you are too stuck in yourself to not see what the Lord's doing, you're going to miss what the Lord's doing, the work that he has for the people streaming in. Now, I get it. It's a problem, though. You know, last weekend, as we're trying to seat people, as people are just streaming in, there's a real temptation to just sort of shut the door, like, all right, just make them go, have them go somewhere else. You know, sit somewhere. But you know what? It's a huge blessing to see that. And my hope for us as men, especially if you call yourself an Athey Creeker, 
If new people are coming in, be ready to give up that seat. Be ready to, to shift and park somewhere else, to park further away for that new person. Don't get stuck into that mindset of this, oh, people are coming in, they're infringing on, my, on what I have. And, well, and we have no right to that. I see the first problem, you know, the first crisis was there's a lot of people coming in. Deal with it correctly. We also see that there was a famine in the land. The end of verse three, it says that we might buy grain because of the famine. There was a drought here. There was a lack of sustenance, of rain. Man, how, how we see that in today's day. I think what brings a lot of men here today is that there's a drought. There's a drought where you are at. The reason why you're here today, not, not to hear me, but the reason why we see so many folks streaming in is there's a famine and there's a drought of the word. There's a drought of the sustenance and the refreshing ability that the word brings to us. And many of you were in places where there was a drought. You were starving and you were hungry and you were thirsty and you were not being satisfied. You were not being filled up. And so you went to where the food was. You went to where there's meat, where there's food, where there's sustenance. Boy, what a, what a privilege it is for us to be a church that feeds that is what we are called to do. That's why as Pastor Brett goes through the word, that's why as we do work, you know, going through the scripture, it's not us, it's not me. We're hungry, but yet we are in a drought. Where you're at, in your, the places where you were, wherever you find yourself, there's a drought. You know, Amos 8, 11, and 12, it says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, Although, you know, food shortages and all this stuff, I don't know, maybe it is for, for today. Nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from the north to the east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. I am I'm truly humbled, men, because you know what? That's not here. That's not where we're at. That's not what the Lord is doing here. And what a privilege it is to be able to have the word, to have sustenance and to be filled afresh. Hold on to that. Continue that. Take what it is that you're learning here. Take what it is, the sustenance that you're giving and share that, spread that, spread that to others. And I think you are, you know, I think that's why there's people here. That's why there's a lot of people. Is it because Athey Creek wants to build this big church? We want more men to be here. We want more. We need more people. Obviously that's not the case. We're, you know, Pastor Brett jokes, he's trying to offend people so that people go away, you know, and so that there's more room here. That's not the case. That's not the case. But you know what? The sustenance that you're getting, give it out. Pour it out to those. So we not only saw a people problem in this great outcry, we also saw there was a famine, there was a drought. But lastly, we see that they were taxed. Verse four, it says, there was also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax. They were giving their children, enslaving their children. They were giving their lands, mortgaging their lands to be able to have to pay the king's tax. But I would also say, not only were they taxed to have to give to the king, but they were taxed because why? They were busy about the work. They were busy about what it is that the Lord had instilled within Nehemiah to do the work, to rebuild the walls. Then there's times where you and I are taxed, where we're doing a good work. We're providing for our family. We're serving at church. We're witnessing. We're, we're doing all these things, this, this good work yet we're taxed. And what happens is our families, our children pay the price. They sort of are the, the brunt of us not realizing that, that we need to make sure that us as men are focused and our first priority 
as our households, as our children, as our wives, before we get to do anything else. Now, they were doing a good work. This wasn't just some random work, hobbies or whatever else. It was a good work. Yet, here we see that they got busy within that. Men, check ourselves in this. If you are, are more prone to, to serve elsewhere, to, to pour yourself out even for good things, but you are not attentive to those needs at home, you need to check yourself. You need to use this as an example of, and I need to make sure that things at home are in order. A great outcry. So we see these three problems and uh, sort of arising from that. And I see that um, there was people problems. There was a famine. There was a drought in the land and that people were taxed both from the king, but also from the busyness of what they were doing. The next thing uh, we see here is, is now we see Nehemiah's uh, response, how he responded to this great outcry of the people, right? This, this great outcry. Now, first, I, I see that Nehemiah, um, he was actually there. We see that he actually cared. He was around the people enough to where they could actually bring their concerns. They could actually cry out to him and bring the requests to him. I think for me, as, as a young dad, when I know that there's going to be issues or problems or things that are going on, I'm not going to be around that, right? My first instinct is, oh, there's an outcry. There's, there's something going on. Yeah, I think I need to go do some yard work outside. Uh, far away from this. Okay, I got to go mow the lawn. Yeah, again. Didn't you just mow that yesterday? Yeah, it's okay. I got to, you know. My, my knee jerk is not to be around where there's potential of problems or, or problems to be brought to me. I'm, I'm far away. Nehemiah, he was among the people. He was in the midst of them. For you and myself, are you close enough to the work that's going on at your house, at your home? With, are you close enough to that? to where they can actually bring that outcry to you, where they can come and bring this request and say, hey, here's the issue, here's the things that are going on. Or if you've removed yourself from that, you've sort of distanced yourself knowing that there's issues, there's problems, I don't wanna have to deal with that. We see once again that Nehemiah, he cared. If you get nothing else from Nehemiah one and two and even, even Nehemiah's mindset, see this over and over and over again that he cared, he actually cared. So before Nehemiah responds in all these other ways that we're going to look at, we see that he actually cared. How do we know that he cared? Because he took ownership. He took ownership in, in what it is that the people's problems were. You know, verse 10, Nehemiah 5, verse 10, it says at the end there is, he's going to go into this and sort of lay into the people, but he says, please let us stop this usury. Please let us stop this usury. He was taking ownership here. Nehemiah uh, exemplified extreme ownership before it was the buzzword, before it was the cool thing, you know? He, he owned. Please let us stop this usury. What does that remind us of? If you look at Daniel uh, chapter nine, um, listen as I read, you don't have to turn there, but Daniel chapter nine, we get the same idea, the same principle. Daniel was interceding and basically praying on behalf of the nation. What does he say? It says verse three of Daniel chapter nine, then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Verse five, he says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Verse six, neither have we heeded your servants and the prophets. Verse eight, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face because we have sinned against you. Verse 11, yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. Verse 13, yet we have not made our prayer before our Lord, our God, that we, are you getting the picture here? Uh, over and over and over again, Daniel is owning, he's taking ownership of the issues of those people at that time. It wasn't him. 
There's no, Daniel obviously did sin. He wasn't perfect, but there's no record of Daniel's wrongs, of his sins. I see a very similar aspect to Nehemiah in that he owned the sin there. There was ownership there, so he actually cared. So before we go into to, you know, Nehemiah's response, that's that first thing that we see is that he actually cared. And so what, I'd, uh, what I wanna uh, sort of look at here before we, before we go to 1 Samuel here is, is that uh, he not only cared, but he showed righteous anger. Let's look at verse six here. It says, verse six, after the complaint of the people came, it says, and I became very angry. I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. Is it ever okay, men, to be angry? Is it, ever, is it ever right to be angry and to sort of have this hot indignation? Angry? Righteous anger? Sure, yeah. Angry? Watch out. Be careful. Be careful how you handle this subject of, of anger, of, well, well, there's a wrong here. There's something, there's an issue. I need to address it. I'm going to have this righteous indignation and address the issue. If that's you, if you're quick to that, would your ears prick up this morning? Okay, would you, would you hear what the Lord would say as we look at this example through Nehemiah? If that's something you're prone to and you're quick to? It says first that he was very angry. There was a righteous anger that Nehemiah had. But before he, you know, before he continues on, I'm, I am so curious, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to, to know this, but I'm so curious of what Nehemiah's countenance was at this point. You know, he hears the outcry. He's been working on the wall, and these people now are sort of, you know, distracting from the work that the Lord would have for him. These people come to him, they're crying out, what is Nehemiah's countenance? What does he look like? He's hearing them speak, and he's just looking straight ahead, looking straight ahead, and you just see the red, the the blood boiling. You know, you see the veins starting to pop, the, the fists are clenched. You know, you see the teeth gritting at some point. Very likely, that could have been what he was doing. The, the anger was, it says here that he was very angry. And we can't, we have to take it as what it is. He was angry. What did he do with that? How did he respond? What were the next steps when he sees that there's a wrong and he's doing what, what it is he senses the Lord is calling him to do? Righteous anger, this is right. What happens next? You know, if, if you're very prone to this, can I give you a caution? You probably already have this memorized, James 1.20. What does that tell us again? The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Let me say it again. James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So when I get to a point where I am angry, where I'm upset, where I'm indignant and, and just hot-tempered, there may be a point that the Lord uses that. But it's not because I'm angry that things are going to change. It's not because of my wrath that things are gonna get better. It's because of what the Lord would do through me using that instance, using that for his glory. Be very careful in this, men. There's two types of anger that we see. You know, Exodus 32, let me uh, just read through that real quick, Um, just highlighting it. This is where Moses and uh, and the Lord are on on the mountain and they're making the, uh, the tablets and then this is where the Lord basically says, Uh, Moses, go get down for your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly out of the way. And so it goes on to say, and there's this dialogue where the Lord says, now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. 
and that I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation, speaking to Moses. And this is where the Lord puts it within Moses' heart to intercede, to sort of uh, cool down, or, or uh, you know, um, as God has this wrath towards the people, what they're doing. You see later in that chapter that it says, so Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets of stone out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Anger, hot-tempered. Here's this one. Was this right? Was this wrong? What, what happened to the people? Well, there, there was a great... Uh, you know, destruction. There was a great death that followed that, that story there. We have another instance of anger there in Genesis, uh, sorry, Numbers chapter 20. And we see that this one is a very different approach. Moses, again, was angry. What happened? It says, Numbers 20, 10, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of, the, out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then it goes on. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe to hollow me in the eyes and the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given you. Both times the children of Israel were wrong. Both times Moses was angry. He was sort of indignant. One time it was correct. The other time he's being, there's consequences. There's punishment for how he handled that situation. What does that mean for you and myself? Again, I, I think there's a place for us to have this righteous indignation, to, to be passionate about things that are wrong. When there's sins, when things that are coming against us, things that are happening within our families, things that are happening in our society, in our culture, where we're at as men, there are times where we do need to have this righteous anger. And we need to act on that. And we need to be very uh, pointed, prayerful through that. But men... Be careful. Be careful in how you respond, how you react. Because if you're prone to that, James 1.20, remember, it's not my wrath that produces anything. It's the Lord through his righteousness that produces, uh, it's the wrath of God that produces the righteousness of himself, not my wrath. So we see that Nehemiah, he, he was very indignant, very angry. But we also, right before that, what did we establish? He cared. So before he was angry, he actually cared. And so we see that he um, was very angry. There was righteous anger. But then verse 7, right after that, what do we see? It says there, I, after, verse 7, after serious thought, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them. And this is where he goes on to sort of lay into them. He gave serious thought. There's, this was not a react moment. This was where Nehemiah responded. You know, he, he showed restraint and getting angry, but he had sort of this self-talk moment, this moment where he is interceding and, and having this very serious thought. Who else do we see throughout Scripture that has that? Well, that's where, why don't you go ahead and, and flip over to uh, uh, 1 Samuel 30. Oops, did I, was that up there already? 1 Samuel 30, why don't you flip over there for me? <clears throat> we see another instant of this great people coming against this person and how they respond when there's friction, when there's tension. How, how does he react? Well, obviously, this is the story of David. David and the Amalekites, they're at Ziklag. It says, now it happened, 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag. 
attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and those who were there. From small to great, they did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city and there it was, burned with fire and their wives, their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelite, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Verse 6, now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. Check it, hear it, underline it, listen. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I see a correlation to how Nehemiah gave serious thought to. He gave serious thought before there was the indignation, the righteous anger. He gave serious thought. He had this ability to sort of self-talk, to pause, just as David did here. David who strengthened himself in the Lord. And then it goes on to say, you know, he, he uh, grabs the priest and then they have the ephod and that's where the Lord encouraged him to say, hey, you're going to get everything back. Don't worry about it. Then in this idea, this, this concept of anger, you and I must be good at pausing, of having this serious thought, this ability to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. If you don't have that tool, if you don't have that ability, you need to. You need to be good at pausing, at stopping, of being able to reflect and strengthen yourself in the Lord. If you don't, then Proverbs has lots to say about those who are quick to say something, quick-tempered. <clears throat> so we see this example here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. So as, as we're going through this, we see Nehemiah's response, how he cared, he had righteous anger, serious thought. Uh, I love how we also see that he had a controlled correction. He, he didn't just flippantly rebuke whoever, but he was very thoughtful in how he approached that. We see that, who were the first people that he re rebuked? He says there in verse six, uh, verse seven, after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury from his brother. He speaks pointedly, specifically, probably loudly to the noble saying, you are doing wrong. But I, I love how before he calls the assembly, before Nehemiah calls the assembly all together, he takes the leaders, the nobles there, and he's specifically speaking to them. Have you ever been in an instance, a situation where you've done something wrong, correction is needed, but it's out in the open with everybody else. There's the group of people and someone's just laying into you and you have everyone else sort of look, looking at you, and you're like, man, that stings. That hurts. That's, that's not pleasant when we're corrected in that way. I love how Nehemiah, even, even the Lord there in Exodus, he took Moses and, uh, and Aaron and specifically spoke to them. Nehemiah is speaking to these, rebuking these elders, these leaders. When we're correcting, be good at, at doing that same thing. Individual, not out with everybody else. And I, I have the example for myself because, you know, I'm a, uh, dad of four, love it. I've got an eight-year-old daughter, uh, then a six-year-old. Kiana's eight, Jack is six, Kieran's three, and then my youngest, uh, James, he's seven months old. And so in our house, the reason why I love going through this is because we are in the season of correction. We are in the, the season, as Pastor Brett says, you know, the board of correction applied to the seat of learning. This is very applicable to me in my life right now as, as we get to constantly and daily work through correction and how to correct properly, how to correct rightly, how to discipline rightly, how to spank correctly. 
Now, this is something very prevalent in my own mind, but when I, when I see how there was controlled correction by Nehemiah, I see how important that is for me as a dad. Because I, obviously I'm called to, to shape and mold and correct, right? That's our role, that's our, that's our desire, that's what we are called to do. But if it's not controlled, boy, that looks, looks bad. There's another phrase for that, that, that that's abusive. It's, it's, it's to a point where it's not what it should be. So when I look at Nehemiah, I see how he has this controlled ability to correct. When I'm, you know, correcting my children, and, <clears throat> and this was really evident for me recently because, you know, my children are growing up, and there's boundaries, there's lines, and so I love being able to correct one child and, you know, saying it loudly enough so the rest of the children know, hey, here's the boundary, right? Here's the line. This child's not doing it correctly, so hopefully you'll learn from what they're doing. You know, and so having those conversations and those things come up, whether they're distracted or they're not listening to mommy or, you know, they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to or listening the first time or obeying, you know, there, there's, there's points in my, my parenting and my correction of my children that was, you know, just natural for me. But when I saw this principle, I realized how that was playing out in my own life that as I'm correcting my lovely daughter, you know, to stay distracted, keep cleaning up, you know, keep doing those things. And then I'd be off doing something else. And then I hear this smaller, younger voice saying, don't be distracted. Make sure you're picking up. Why are you doing this? You know, and this tone that happens. And I'm like, that's not me speaking. Who, who, who's, who's saying this? And here I am coming to my son who's correcting, you know, his sister. And I'm correcting him again. Hey, don't speak to your sister that way. Don't. And then, you know, I'm struck across the face. I'm like, oh boy, that's me. Yep, that's me. I, that's me speaking. And so he sees this correction, and now he's emulating that. And I'm trying to be really good at, at when I correct, making sure that it's specific, it's individual, it's, it's personal, it's, it's not out in front of everybody else. Nobody loves that. I tell you, being a father, correcting, there's a lot of applications to me in my own life as I'm walking through this and how the Lord uh, corrects me and what he does in me as I need to be disciplined as well. Controlled correction. We see, you know, also there, I love how Nehemiah, he dealt with these things head on. Can you guys hear me for just a little bit on this? When he's addressing the issues here, he says, after serious thought, he rebuked the nobles. Then he gathered the assembly. Then verse eight, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? Nehemiah did not mince words. Nehemiah was one who spoke exactingly. He dealt with issues head on. That's not me. <laughs> Men, truly, honestly, I, I'm the last person to want to deal with an issue, deal with something like that. Instead, you know what? I'm gonna tiptoe around it, tiptoe around it until I can get to that point that maybe someone, someone else will address that issue. This was no greater scene in my own life than when, uh, um, when I get to do premaritals. You know, being on the pastoral care team, a lot, of, a lot of what we do is meeting with couples, sitting down, talking through what the word talks about as husbands and wives. And so we get to do that from time to time. But one of, the, one of the, the harder issues, one of the things that comes up a lot of times, especially nowadays, is this area of those who are living together, those who are having sex before marriage, and those who are not living the way that they should. Now, early on when I was getting to do this, <clears throat> You know, you sit down with a couple, and it's great. I enjoy it. You get to know them. You get to interact with them. I love that aspect. But looming in the back of my mind was always this question. I'm going to have to ask him. I'm going to have to ask him. I'm going to have to dive into this conversation, and I just, I just don't want to. I don't want to. Lord, is there another way? Is there, maybe another pastor can ask that question. You know, and so I'm tiptoeing around this issue. 
you know, just hoping that, that I don't have to address it head on. And there I am, you know, hey, couple, is, is there anything else you're struggling with by chance? Or is there, uh, you know, issues you may need to talk about with me? Or what else is going on with you guys? Uh, you know, and, and truly, it was, it was one of those things that I, I just kind of skirted around till I realized, you know what? That's actually not caring for this couple. That's actually not the most caring, loving thing that I can do for this couple. Instead of tiptoeing around these issues that are there, very biblical, Hebrews 13, 4 tells us, you know, that the marriage bed is undefiled, that couples are not to be intimate, living together. And so for me, as I, as I realized that and as I grew in that, I, I realized, man, I can't just tiptoe around these issues, these hard things that are in front of me. I need to address them head on. So now when a couple comes in like, oh, hey, hey, nice to meet you. Are you sleeping together? Are you guys, are you shacking up? Are you guys, are you? <laughs> not really. Well, we'll do a little bit more than that before that. But, but I, I realized, you know what? It's, it's because we care. That's why I'm going to address this head on. That's why I need to be one who sees the issue, calls it out, have that sort of righteous indignation and address it. The question I would say for us men today is, what area in your life, what thing is it that you just kind of tiptoe around? You hope someone else will address the issue. You hope your wife will figure that out. Your hopeful kids will, you know, time will go by and they'll just, they'll just work, they'll, they'll figure that, that thing out. They'll, they'll grow out of that, I'm sure. If there's things right now that you're sort of tiptoeing around like I did in those issues, can I encourage you? Can I exhort you? Deal with that head on. Then re reflect with me just a minute here. Reflect with me because I know there's things right now in your lives, in your walks, in your relationships, in your families that we've just kind of let slide. And we haven't done this approach with Nehemiah where we've seen the issue and we've approached it head on. Can, can you think through with me right now? Maybe it's interactions with your wife and the communication breakdown or, or the issues that are there. Maybe it's something with my children, my family, my kids that's wrong, that's not right, that I've just let slip and I'm just hoping that it'll go away, hoping that it'll be addressed. If there's issues that you have right now, can I encourage you, can I exhort you, can I really press upon you? Deal with it head on. Deal with that issue head on. Not in a, a, a flippant sort of prideful way or I'm better than them, but don't skirt around the issue. Deal with that, whatever that may be. Think through that. I want you to think through and I want you to picture whatever that may be. I don't know your situation. I don't know where your marriage is at, where your families are at, what your situation is. But whatever that thing is, purpose in your heart this weekend, purpose in your heart in this season to address that. Why? Man, because the Lord cares for us. He doesn't want us to have to continue with that issue, that thing. Dealing with things head on. I love how Nehemiah, his response, how he dealt with all these things. He cared. He was very angry, but righteous anger. Not only that, but he gave serious thought. He had this self-talk <clears throat> that he did, just like David strengthened himself in the Lord. There was controlled correction, not just flippantly rebuking whoever, but he was very controlled in that, and he dealt with things head on. The last thing I see here is, how did he do all this? Nehemiah told all the people what not to do, right? Don't do this. But he didn't just say, don't do that. He also told them how they could have done it correctly. And as I'm, you know, correcting my children and encouraging them, it's really easy just to say, don't do that. Stop doing that. Put that down. Obey. Don't, you know, and honestly, I sometimes see myself doing that. Just correct, 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 correct. Whereas I, I as a father, I need to correct, but also tell them what to do. And I see that here in uh, verse 9. 
Nehemiah 5, verse 9. It says, then I said, uh, what are you doing? It is not good. So he points out, says, don't do this. But then he says, should you not walk in the fear of God, the fear of our God, because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies, the fear of God. Then when I was uh, going through this and looking at this, I, uh, I know this. You know, Proverbs 9, 10, what does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We see that there, there's fear of God. And, and I think for me, there's this concept, this principle that we all probably know. Fear God, fear God. But men, when do we actually do that? When does that actually something we do? This is what I came, this is the conclusion I came to. You know, you look at Genesis 22, 12, there Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son, right? And, and the Lord sort of halts him. And what does the Lord say? He says, the Lord saw that he, Abraham, feared God because he did not withhold his only son. God saw this demonstration that Abraham feared God. Even Job 2, 3, it says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? This was convicting for me because fearing God in my mind, well, it's something I underlined in my Bible. Well, it's something I write down in my notes. Well, it's something I tell people. It could be a shirt I wear. It could be some, a, a cool phrase, something that I actually, you know, have on. Fearing God, men, is a demonstration. When you fear God, it's not just a principle. And I had to remind myself that because when's the last time I had to demonstrate my fear towards the Lord? And it's convicting for me to make sure that I am doing that, that I'm one that actually fears God. Am I more worried about what people think? Am I more worried about what the men here think of me? Oh, is he funny? Oh, he's not like Pastor Brad. Oh, what's happened? To the, oh, yeah. Am I fearing what it is that's being sort of spoken towards me? If I am, it's gonna cripple how the Lord would wanna use me. But when I fear God and I say, God, I'm, I'm doing this for you. I'm serving you. No matter what the ramifications are, that's when you and I demonstrate our fear for the Lord. And this is where Nehemiah is telling these people, hey, if you had feared God, you wouldn't have gone through all this. There wouldn't be this correction, this rebuke that you have. Fearing God. We see here next that there's uh, how he responded. So their response. So we saw thus far a great outcry. We saw Nehemiah's response and now we see their response. Uh, real quick as we sort of go through this, verses 8, 12, and 13, we see three things. The first thing, after Nehemiah gives this rebuke, it says that they were silenced and found nothing to say. They were silenced and found nothing to say. For us, when we're corrected, when I'm correcting my children and they're silent and they're no longer making excuses, oh, well, brother, sister, they did that, they did that. When they're silent, I know I've hit a chord. Right? Have you ever had that moment where you're calling someone out, you're speaking something, and they don't say anything back? That silence is sort of an indication. Oh, we hit something. We hit something right on. Not only were they silent, but it says they accepted what it is that Nehemiah had told them. Verse 12 says, so they said, we will restore it and we'll require nothing from them. We will do as you say. They accepted it. We're beginning to see a receptivity and a humility from these people to, to not only be silent, but to accept the correction that's coming their way. And how do we see that sort of manifested in their action? They actually did what it is that Nehemiah said. Verse 13, the end of verse 13, it says, and all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. Their response, I wanna, I wanna land a little bit on this, this portion here. 
where it says, and all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. They said amen and praised the Lord. Then the people did according to the promise. Men, repentance brings praise. You know, I, it, was, uh, it was a blessing getting to sort of uh, sit here and worship with you guys this morning because it's very different when it's just a bunch of dudes singing songs than when you have the female factor, list, you know, sort of adding harmony and whatnot. It's, it's very different. It's very foreign. There's something honestly powerful to that that I really enjoy. And I enjoy that aspect of being able to worship. But I, I noticed something about myself, and I wonder if this is true for you as well. In the area of praise, those of us, those who are lifting their hands, those who are singing intently, those who are really putting themselves into worship, into singing the songs, I've realized it's those who are most broken, those who have gone through so much hurt, so much sorrow, those who realize all that the Lord's done, they're really emphatic and they really engage in worship. They, they give themselves to singing and praising him. Can I encourage us men here? I, I, my desire for the Athey Creek men is that we would be worshipers. That's unnatural. Can I tell you that? It's not easy. Why? Well, we don't always sound good. We don't always, you know, I don't always want to sing. We're really distracted. You know, I'm worried about this or that. And maybe the question for you this morning was, how are you when Will and the gang were leading worship? Were you engaged in worship? Realizing that, man, we get to praise him. We get to glorify him. Or was it just sort of the precursor? To, to the teaching precursor to when we get to sit down and do what we're, what, we're, what we're at. Can I lovingly sort of correct and encourage those of you who are not good at worship? Those of you who maybe hold back, who cross the arms, who don't engage. Can I, can I correct us in that and say, you need to change that. You need to change how you approach that because if that's you, worship is something that you and I are gonna do for eternity, for the rest of our lives. Now, I get it, I get it, but before, uh, uh, before I go too far into that, why don't you turn with me to Revelations 5.19. I'm, I don't wanna keep us too much longer. Almost done here. But I want, I want you guys to see this and how, how crucial and how vital worship is. Revelations 5. We won't read through all of this, but I wanna just lift and pull some things out of here. Revelations chapter 5, starting in verse 9, it says... And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God, we shall reign on the earth. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. Beginning of verse 12, it says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. End of verse 13, it says, um, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sit on the throne. Verse 14, it says, then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. You see that those who were repentant, who were realizing they're wrong, there was an emphasis towards praise, towards worship. Man, if, if I could emphatically desire something for us in this season, would you be a worshiper? Would you be one who humbles himself? When, when the gang are up here, when they're worshiping, would you be one who willingly steps in and loudly proclaims these praises to him? Don't do it because I said it. Don't do it because there's... But men, you and I need to be worshipers. 
And I think what happens in our day and age is we're so hungry, we're so starving for scripture, we're so starving for truth. And, uh, and thank the Lord, praise the Lord, we get that. We get that here at this church. But I also see that we're quick to critique worship. And I get it again, with so many different bands, so many different people, so many different things, you don't really know what's doctrinally sound or not. And so now you're critiquing this word or that word. And is that right? Well, who's singing that song? And I'm not diminishing that by any, more, by any point. But if all you do in worship is critique what it says or who it's from, and you never engage in worship, in true, genuine worship to the Lord, you're amiss. You are missing this opportunity for you and myself to engage and be intimate and connected to him through worship. When we get to spend eternity in heaven, we're not sitting in comfy chairs, notes, Bible, sitting here, you know, just sort of, that's not heaven. We get to spend eternity praising the Lord, giving glory and honor to him. And my hope for each of us is that we would be really good at that. If, if you're not natural at that, which is probably a majority of us, if that's not you, can you do some hard work for me? Can you be humble? Let me rebuke you a little bit, correct you a little bit in this and say, if you're one that doesn't sing, doesn't worship, change that. We have, we have a very talented crew up here who come, they put in the time, the energy and the effort, prayerful in how they uh, approach these songs and they are leading us in worship. And I would, I would desire for each of us men to be really good at that. To really good. Now, don't do it for me. Don't do it. I'm going to sing songs so that my wife sees me or my, my kids see me or whatever else. You know, we're doing the whole worship thing. Genuinely, with the right heart, you and I have so much to praise the Lord for, to give him glory and honor in. And that would be my emphasis for us is let's be worshipers, okay? Let's let our worship as Athey Creek men set us apart, not only our knowledge of the word, not only our desire to be sharpened and to grow, but let's let our worship of him identify us as athe men, as men who worship him. So I see this, that, that repentance, repentance bring praise. And, and the last thing I wanna uh, sort of see is that we have this uh, great model in Nehemiah as we finish up this last part. I won't keep you too much longer here, but it says, we see that there's generosity. He was very generous. Nehemiah was generous. It says, uh, last part of verse 14, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provision. It also says there in uh, verse 18, Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provision because the bondage was very heavy. They did not buy land. They did not take what they could have. Nehemiah was generous with his time, with his energy, with his efforts. He was very generous. And I think for us, good reminder for us to be generous. I also see that he was very hospitable. He opened the door there in verse uh, 17. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers beside those who came to us from the nations around us. He opened his house, hospitable. Nehemiah exemplified that as well. The last verse we see here in verse 19, it says, remember me, Nehemiah speaking, my God for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Now, it's likely that Nehemiah was written uh, just on his own, sort of a journal, I'd say. But Ezra, who, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book at one point, pulls these out, and I'm thankful he did. But you see a lot of these I statements, I did this, I did that, I did that. And uh, he ends with, remember me, my God, according to all that I have done for this people. I guess I'll leave us with this. You know, I don't want to be remembered for what I do. <laughs> I don't want, want to be remembered for, oh, you know, that long-winded sermon he gave on that, you know, Saturday morning with all the men there or this or that. I don't want to be remembered by what I do. 
I want to be remembered for what Christ has done for me. I want to be, rem- I want to be rem- reminded and remember all that the Lord has done and showered upon my life. So as much as Nehemiah wants to be remembered for what he's done, he's done a great and a good work. Would us, would we be reminded of the work that Christ has done in us and through us? Would you guys pray with me? Father, it's, it's such a privilege to, to navigate through your word, to navigate through the scriptures here, to see how you would speak to us, to see how you would grow us and mature us. And our, our hope, our desire, Lord, is that as we, as we let these things sort of hit, as we let these things remind us and convict us and correct us, God, would we be men who don't just leave this place unchanged, but Lord, that your word would hit and would resonate. And I ask, Lord, again, that we would decrease, that I would decrease, but Lord, that you would increase. We ask that you would help us in those areas and whatever it is that that we may need help with, whether that's having that righteous anger, whether it's dealing with things head on and not sort of just navigating around it and uh, being able to do things as unto you. Father, or the desire to be worshipful, to be men who truly praise you, humble ourselves, die to ourselves, to lift our hands, to lift our voices to you. I ask, Father, that you would help us as men to grow and mature. That the men here today, because they spent this time diving into your word, that their wives, that their families, that those around them would be built up, would be blessed because of the work done here today. Lord, we wanna be not just Nehemiah-like men, but more importantly, um, Jesus-like men, men who look to you, men who walk with you. So our hope, our desire, Father, is that we'd be sharpened, we'd be increased, we'd grow. Anything that's not of you, Father, I pray that it would burn away. But anything that's of you and is of your truth, would it stick and would it resonate? Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.